My story about my heart starts with my head. I grew up as the oldest of three in an Air Force family, and we traveled the world. When my family moved back stateside, I found myself in Georgia. I went to high school where I met many Christians. I was witnessed at frequently, but I had questions and they were not answered to my satisfaction. By the time I was 17, I'd had enough of all these self-professed followers with imperfect lives telling me I needed God. So what? My life could be an imperfect mess too? No thanks. In some ways, I became my own worst enemy as I learned to trust my ability to reason above all else. This all-powerful, all-loving God had never given me the time of day. If God had given me five senses, surely he could appeal to one of them on his own behalf and clear this misunderstanding up about his existing. But as I look back now, I see evidence of something I didn't see then. In spite of all those feelings, I did have a tension in my heart about God. Eventually, this turmoil wore me down, so I had a conversation with God. I told him that I did not believe he existed and that this was his chance to prove to me that he did. I waited, I listened hard, and when the silence was over, I had the proof I needed and I became an atheist with a clean conscience. I met my wife in college. She was beautiful, intelligent, funny, but she was a Christian. She let me know that she expected her future husband to attend church with her. I did the math in my head and two hours on Sunday seemed like pennies to pay in exchange. We joined a married small group. Apparently, it's not common to show up on the first night and declare to everyone that they shouldn't expect you to pray because you don't believe in Jesus. But it was true. And our new friends were understanding, even when I wasn't. Along the way, I learned that a few of my assumptions about Christianity were way off. And inevitably, an old tension returned. One of the things that I came to appreciate about the Christian God was that people who were suffering would find hope in the idea of him. The concept that God had compassion for them and forgave them seemed to fill a void that people needed filling. But this did me no good. I was not downtrodden. I was not desperate for love. I was making more money than I ever had. And yet the tension grew. I didn't expect what happened next. I had a disturbing realization. It occurred to me that I was 27 years old and that I was basically taking spiritual advice from a 17-year-old. And not just any 17-year-old, but the 17-year-old version of myself. This thought bothered me. It exacerbated the tension. I had changed my position on many things since then. I mean, at 17, you make decisions based on ideas. At 27, you factor in experience. This realization did not make me a Christian, but I came to a point of humility. I reasoned that if God did exist, it is possible he may not follow my template for revealing himself. I was frustrated. I wanted to know the truth, you know. Is God and or Jesus real? I got to a place where I didn't care if I'd been wrong. Deep down, I wanted to know the truth. So I prayed, God, if you actually exist, I recognize you may do things differently than I would if I were God. I'm open to you proving to me that you exist on your terms. This was the best my prideful heart could do. I prayed it, I believed it, and I didn't care how long it took. That was the turning point. That's when it became personal to me. 
I let go of a small piece of my pride that day, and I've never regretted a moment of it. In fact, I wish I could export it and share it with the world. That is the story of how my heart went over my head. That is my story. We've been talking about this series about coming to Christ and what it means to make faith decisions and how we make faith decisions. And you see in Chris's story, you know, he, he came to this point where something was very personal, something was very real to him. And it doesn't actually really fully go into the detail, but, but he had to get past this point. He had to come to terms with God wanting to be personal to him and look at his past and allow himself to see God working in him in the past. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Over the few weeks, we've been talking about how we, how we make those faith decisions, that we usually don't come to Christ after getting all of our questions answered, that, that something very personal happens in our life that, that connects us to God, and then God becomes very personal to us. And then, and then last week, Phil brought us a wonderful message on how, how we make decisions all the time that are unexplainable. But yet when we come to God, we, we focus on the unexplainable things and we make those barriers, but we make decisions all the time based upon what's undeniable because in all of our lives there are things that are unexplainable that we assume and we do and we live simply because they're undeniable. Today we're going to wrestle with this idea of coming to terms from two aspects and, and we're going to look at Chris's testimony in the Bible to discover how that looks. You know... One of the big things that comes out of, of Chris's testimony is the fact that he looked at God in such categorical terms. He looked at him in a way that, in a way that he, had to, he had to define him. He had to rationalize him. Everything had to be explained. Everything had to be in a box. And it was almost as though God were distant from him, something to figure out rather than something personal. And uh, just to, to begin kicking this off and illustrating it a little bit further, I want to show you another video that kind of is appropriate to the topic today, and, and it's also appropriate to the season. It might rescue some of your Christmases, so enjoy. Gift, but there are many reasons a man can end up in here. 
I told my wife that staying home with the kids was a heck of a lot easier than having to actually work for a living. See, a lot of guys end up in here for the holidays because they give their wives thoughtless gifts. Like a vacuum I got my wife extra round memory for her computer as a gift. I even attached a note that said, thank you for the memories. It didn't go down very well. <laughs> Is there any hope? Can you get out of here? One man got out. Express Arnold. Help with the cooking. Stop checking out other women in restaurants. He sent us this. Arnold's wife let him out of the doghouse. Not sure how he did it. Now we trim that a little bit. There is so much in there that is just, uh, you know, I hesitate showing that because it just has every dysfunctional thing you could ever imagine in a marriage relationship, doesn't it? The, 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 the guy at the end running around uh, howling, uh, he got his wife a, a mustache wax. But you know, here's the deal. Guys, I could probably talk to women too on this, but it's easier for me to talk to guys. Guys, when you got married, how many of you read books? How many of you heard from other people all the things that women like and how to, how to get along with them, how to communicate, how to make them happy? And, and you'd come home and you'd say, honey, I'm going to do this for you. And she'd go, I don't want that. In fact, she might even get mad at you. And you would say what? Well, everybody says that's what women like, or the book says women like that, right? You know, we approach life in so many ways, and we approach even our faith in categorical terms by the book. We say, the good book says, God, I should be able to do this, and if I do this, then this will be the result. And we go through life, and we find ourselves running into these reactions or these lack of actions from God. And we wonder why. Because there's something that needs to be personal, not categorical in our life. Let me illustrate it another way. I made a little list here of uh, items that, uh, that define why a married couple should only have two kids. Okay? Let's go with this for a second. The first, re- the first reason, I think, is, is it complicates trans- transportation to have more than two kids, right? Because we all know that when you've got two kids, you can have your little sporty vehicle that you like to drive because it makes you feel good, right? And you can put your two kids in the back seat, and you can have them on opposite sides of the car, right? And they can't touch each other. They can't steal each other's toys. Everything's fine, right? You can go for a trip, you can throw a movie on, and they're not going to fight. But when you have three, what happens? You either stick them all three in a row, and then they're constantly grabbing and clawing each other, or you have to do what? You have to spend more money, and you have to buy this ugly vehicle that doesn't make me feel good, that has three rows, so we can continue to keep them apart, right? And not only does the dollars hurt us there, but it hurts us in the house. We can all have these nice, beautiful starter homes that usually end up being our downsized retirement home that we really always wished we could have had because it's not this huge place to clean and we can keep it up nice and we can have just three bedrooms and and we can live the American dream of having all of our kids have their own bedroom and then we're fine and we don't have any of these arguments about who has to share with who and who gets the free room, who, who gets the room by themselves and how many years do they get it 
written, and, and we don't have to hear it at reunions when we get older, them coming back and saying, well, yeah, but, but Joe got the room for five years, and I only got a room by myself for one year, right? And, and if we only have two, we don't have any of this middle child stuff. I mean, come on, how many of you are middle children? I was a middle children. My wife one time got up here and said how she really liked that because middle children kind of tend to be the lost one. Why? Because when you have two parents and you have two kids, one has a problem or both of them have a problem and they both get individual attention, right? But once you have a third one, somebody gets left out. Somebody gets lost. There's usually somebody in the family, usually the middle child, who decides, I'm not going to assert myself because the older one is asserting himself, the younger one's asserting himself. I'll just make do. And basically by having three children, we need to double or triple our inheritance because they're going to need counseling later and they're going to have to go to church to get themselves fixed right now now just for the fun of it i want to take a moment and have you join me in coming up with some additional reasons why we should only have two kids and and here to help me just because i don't want you to have to yell is is going to be my son and uh and he's going to be the runner with the mic here and and before before i tell you to start answering and send them out you probably all saw this coming if you know it, if you know us well. This is my third child. Now what just happened? You don't wanna you don't wanna give feedback now because you have enough social sense to know that you're gonna be giving feedback to a third child about why he shouldn't exist. Right? And you know that any feedback you give is gonna become very, very personal to me all at once. You see? We can talk about things in a concept. We can talk about... Thanks, Jared. Give him a round of applause. We can talk about things in categorical terms. We can ask our questions about God. We can even come to Him with our statements and our belief about faith that's saying, God, you say this, if I do this, then this will be the result, right? And all of our expectations and come to Him with our terms. But something changes when it becomes personal. You know, just because you debate about how many kids you want to have doesn't mean you have those many, that many kids. And a few weeks ago we talked about marriage. Just because you answer all your questions about why you should get married and you, you save enough and, and you answer all the questions about how you're not going to end up in a painful divorce or all these other things, just because you answer those questions doesn't make you married. And just because you answer all your questions about God and you come to service on a regular basis does not make you a Christian. It is far more personal than that. Far more personal than that. You know, the summary statement of Christianity is this in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. For God so loved the world, He became personal to us. And we get to celebrate this that this time of year. He didn't become personal to all of us all at once. He became personal one person at a time. He wanted to get involved in our lives. You know, just like your your first baby may change your whole perspective. If you were a, a career person and didn't want to have any kids, or, or maybe you wanted to not get married for a while and you're all your questions there, but when you meet that right person, your whole perspective changes upside down. When you experience God personally, your entire perspective changes. 
But so often we approach faith through these categorical means, through these arguments, through wanting to get the answers. And, and all, always part of our answers are, is, is what I would akin to this kind of cosmic vending machine approach to God, where, where God, if we put in enough quarters, if we do enough money in there, then, then we should get something back, right? And, and we all know that doesn't always work because I think everybody here at one time in your life has kicked or hit or tipped the vending machine, right? Because it didn't give you what you thought you should get. And we so easily approach God that same way, saying, God, you know, okay, I'm not really sure you exist, but, but I'm going to go to church regularly, and, 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 and if you're real, then my life will change this way, and, and, and it'll be easier and better, and I shouldn't have these problems and these sufferings. And, or, or, God, I'm going to read the Bible, and, and, and then all this stuff will automatically change, and, I, and, and it doesn't happen according to our expectations or in the time frame we want. Or, or maybe we say to God, I'm going to go ahead and, I'm going to go ahead and choose God to give for for a while, but if but if it doesn't solve my financial problems, then I'm gonna, I'm going to bag it because it didn't work, and and we treat God like this like this object, like this like this vending machine, and we question God. It's asking Him, God, do you really, really, really want the best for us? Or or we tend to think of God as as wanting us to be robots and not thinking individuals and. Who should he, why should he decide? Why shouldn't we decide who he is and determine who he is and come to him on his terms? Because if God isn't this way, then he's not God and I'm not going to follow him. And you see, the original sin in the whole Bible was this very essence of going to God and wanting what we wanted and not trusting that he really had his best for us. It was, it was this belief that, and this temptation that said, God is withholding something from you, and therefore you need to judge him. You need to treat him as a category. You need to, you need, you need to treat him as this, as this big being who is just trying to hide from you rather than really wanting to be personal and close and intimate and real and open and honest with you. And ever since then, we continue to hold and God off and treat him with those same suspicions. What can we get from God? What do we need to do to be happy? You know, we look at the, we look at the early part of, of history recorded in the Bible and people were coming to God all the time and they were sacrificing because if they sacrificed, then they could hold off God's wrath. And, and maybe if they sacrificed really good and, and did this, then they'd actually get blessed. And, and we'd have people coming to God and saying, what do I need to be successful in my finances? In that area, there probably wasn't finances. Their question probably was, what do I need to do to have better crops? And some religious person would come up with a rule and they'd offer this. And then they'd say, okay, if I offer this, then I should have more crops. Or, or in that day, maybe they came and said, oh, I should have more, I need more boys and more family, more, more kids and more boys to work the land. And, and what do I need to do to get that God? And somebody would tell them what they need to do and they'd make some sort of a sacrifice or some sort of a prayer, some sort of a ritual and expect God to give it to them. But it doesn't always work. And, and, and it's, a little bit like, it's a little bit like marriage in our relationship to God sometimes. Guys, you know, if you're married, you like to have sex, right? How many of you come to your wife sometimes with the things that you think will make her want to have sex with you, and she comes back with the response, Ah, honey, I just feel like you're using me. I just feel like I'm an object to you. 
because what we're doing is not right. Somehow our motive gets a little twisted and our wives don't see us there. And wives, you do the same thing to the husbands sometimes. You just have different needs you want to get met. And we treat each other like objects to satisfy our own desire or we communicate in a way that makes people think that's how we're treating them. And and we do the same with God. He doesn't want to be treated like an object for our own gratification. He wants to be so much more personal to us than that. And the deal is, we have to come to God on His terms, not our terms. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at a story of Abraham, and Abraham is this beautiful example of this whole point today because because God came to him this, the man goes through the sin and, and this whole creation is going to pot and, and God wants to save it. And, and if we were God, most of us would say, okay, let's go to the big crowd. Let's appear on a big mountain. Let's do something. Let's spell out the rules of the relationship. Let's spell out exactly what everybody has to do. And let's correct everybody and make sure everybody thinks right, acts like, does everything right. But God didn't do that. He's this amazingly personal God who chooses to rescue us from our sin and to rescue humanity by coming to one person. Not with the vending machine instructions, not with the laws, not with the rules. Those wouldn't even come for hundreds of years, but simply to a person, one person, as a person. And as we looked at a few weeks ago and we talked about Abraham in detail, the clear lesson of Abraham's life is that God wants us, requires us, tests us, invites us, encourages us, coaches us, loves us to come to him on his terms, not ours. But there's another aspect of this whole idea of coming to terms because when you hear this phrase coming to terms in regular life, what do you usually think of? Usually it's, usually it's stated in kind of a, more of a counseling setting or, or a personal experience setting like, like you just came to terms with the death of your mother or you came to terms with this difficult experience or, or you had to come to terms with the loss of your job and what it meant about who you were and what you were good at and what you weren't and, and you had to wrestle through the lies that you may have believed because you have this difficult experience and you have to come to terms with it to settle the issue, to move on in a healthy fashion. But this term, coming to terms, is always tied to what? Not an object, not rules, not something abstract, not this force way off. It's always tied to a personal experience. And the same is true with God. We've said a lot around here that God is trying to reveal himself. He is more than capable of revealing himself personally to every single one of us. And we don't have to prove that to anyone. Hopefully in our lives here, hopefully in my life, you will experience God's personalist partially because of who he is to me, but, but he's showing himself to everyone all the time and wanting you to know that yourself. But this whole coming to terms with God being personal is so difficult for us. How can this great creator who created everything ever want to be personal with me, this puny little one of six or seven billion or what, eight billion, I forget how many people are on the planet right now. And we go and we experience God. We experience these amazing things. 
And we say, we walk away from it so often and we say, hmm, was that just emotion? Was that just, was that just this guy talking about something when I was down emotionally or feeling bad and it just touched me? And was that really God or was it just somebody talking or, or, or did this, or was it just a coincidence? Did I just, did I just sit under the air conditioning vent and not really feel God and just felt the, you know, what, I mean, we question it so often and, and there's this amazing, wonderful illustration as a preamble to the Christmas story illustrates this so well about how how this vending machine approach to faith can so easily prevent us from seeing how God wants to be personal. And when we get caught in this vending machine approach to faith, it multiplies our questions and our barriers rather than removing them and helping us live this wonderful faith that he wants us to live. Let's just start reading in Luke 1. It's, it's verse 5 and it says, it starts reading there, in the time of Herod, king of Judah, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands. These guys were good people. These were faithful followers of God. And these were leaders in God's work. And they followed his decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old and the very clear understanding of that is they were beyond childbearing years. And you see, the religion of that day was very much the whole vending machine thing. You sacrifice for this and you get this. You, you give in this way and you get that. And, and you do this and God will bless you. And, and there's some truth in that. But, but it was so much lived in a way that just do this. It was a superstitious, magical formula of God as this person who was out there and not really personal. And yet, and yet this blameless, wonderful couple, God never gave them the greatest blessing that they could ever have. In their culture of that day, the greatest blessing anybody could have was to have a child. And God never gave that in spite of their faithfulness, in spite of their doing everything right, in spite of them being blameless. It goes on in verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot. The Lot, they don't really know for sure what it was, but a lot of people think it was basically kind of a form of rolling the dice that God used to indicate his will in certain situations. And according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came and all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, and then it goes on in a second here. Basically, what we have a picture of here is that, is that Zechariah this day walks into his job. He's a priest. He's supposed to work in the temple. And he gets this great honor selected by Lot to go and worship God, to do something that not very many people always got to do. And, and he kind of expected this day to just simply be kind of, you know, dress up in the priestly robes, walk in, pray the prayers, sling a little incense around uh, while everybody outside is praying and worshiping and walk out. Just kind of the ordinary thing that you do to put money in the vending machine to make sure God's okay and to worship him and do what you're supposed to do. And it was an honor to be selected by God. But, but I have to wonder. I wonder if he thought at times, is this really God? Like we do? 
Or is this just coincidence? Is this just happenstance? Does, does God really work through the lot every single time and, and he really pays attention to all the little details, even this daily schedule thing going on in my life? Or, or does he only really speak and only really become personal for the great historic events with the great people and the great leaders and great religious leaders? Does, does he really care about the little things or, or is this just, you know, coincidence and I just happen to get selected and, and he walks in and and it says this, and Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. This is some sort of amazing experience that even this religious man walking into the temple had no expectation of anything like this happening, and it just freaked him out. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, beyond childbearing years. And, and, and just as we'll see in a minute from, from Zechariah's reaction to this thing, i got to believe that this was not a current prayer he was praying. This is probably a prayer he prayed years and years and years ago because he and his wife were well beyond childbearing age. He probably gave up on that one a long time ago based upon his reaction and it goes on to say, Your son will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will be rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the eye, a sight of the Lord, and, and skipping down as the Holy Spirit will be on him before he's born, and, and he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is an amazing promise of God over this child. And as kind of a side note, it's this amazing illustration of how God wants to be personal to us. God himself sends himself into the world, but as preparation for him to come, he sends this messenger ahead, these other people, and he does the same thing to us. He sends other people into our lives through which we experience God's presence, but he's also doing stuff to prepare each and every one of us to receive his experience to us of his personalness so that we can know him and love him. Not just as the creator, not just as this distant God, not just as this all-powerful person, but the Christmas story reminds us he wants us to know him as this touchable baby. He wants us to know him as this, as this wonderfully winsome child that we love. He wants us to know him as his best friend, as we know a best friend. He wants us to know and experience his presence more than even the most intimate relationship in our life. But you see, we have these experiences with God where he speaks to us or moves or does something in our life or, or creates circumstances that, that statistically we could not argue as being anything other than amazing and having to be from God. But we tend to deny them. We tend to question them. Sometimes right away. Sometimes we have this experience with God and, and maybe a week or, or two or, or maybe a year later we, we go, wow, was that really God or was that just... Is that just me? Or was it just a coincidence? You know, one of the struggles with this whole thing is the reality of a personal encounter with God makes a demand on us. 
It makes a demand that we come to him on his terms, not on ours. That we allow his timing, not ours. You know, Zechariah immediately questions this experience. He says, he says, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Translation, this is a huge coincidence. It can't be real. It doesn't fit my category. It didn't happen on my terms. God should have done this years ago when my wife was able to have kids. I don't understand this. How can this be real, God? It didn't fit with what I think should happen. You didn't do what I thought you should do in the way you did it. And just like Chris in our testimony up front, Zechariah finds himself as a 57-year-old man looking back at his his, his disappointment at 40. And that disappointment he carries with him as a barrier instead of settling it. He carries it with him as a barrier to him experiencing God, to him experiencing even acknowledging that this might be God. And we do the same today. God shows himself to us. We doubt it. We sense God's presence or, or he speaks to us through somebody else or, or he arranges these circumstances that we just can't argue with and, and, and we walk away and later on say, God, I don't know if that's you. And, and maybe you're here today and you haven't even made your faith decision to follow Jesus yet, but, but I can guarantee you that he has been working to show himself to you. And there are experiences in your life which you have dismissed as mere coincidence, a mere emotion that had been really God trying to show himself to you. You know, maybe, maybe you had a church experience years ago that really hurt you. Maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe, maybe you're not struggling with him as Lord. Maybe you're not struggling with following him. Maybe you're struggling with him because, because you had a negative experience around, around somebody you prayed for and loved not getting healed. And, and so you just have a really hard time trusting and moving on from that and settling that God wants to be personal to you in your time of sickness, in your time of, of, of struggles with health. Or, or maybe it was something in your finances or job and, and you just can't let God in there. I don't know what it is. I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here um, because, well, we'll just see if this is God or not. I don't normally talk like this. This morning I felt like God gave me a dream before I came, before I woke up. And I felt like there were going to be people here from the dream where you had experienced abuse. I don't know for sure if it was you personally. Or, or if it was just you saw some children around you who were just so abused and, and you took great offense. And you've lived your life compassionate and passionate for that issue. You've worked everything you can do to, to help that issue. There's this soft, wonderful side of you, but there's this really hard side of you as well that basically says, God, you weren't there. All you abusers, all you other people, bring it on. I'm ready to take you down. And that's been a barrier for you in your walk of faith with God. You've carried that from 17 to 27 or, or from 16 to 50. I don't know what the age was for you. And that has defined your ability to receive and experience God's presence from then on because of the hardness that came across you in that time. You know, the amazing thing about this is that 
that even though we create these barriers, that we deny God's presence in our life, that we, that we use things in our life that went wrong to, to just say, God, you can't work in this way. This really can't be you because you didn't do it back here. God is patient. In this, in this story, the angel said to, to Zechariah, he says, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time, which will come true, God saying, on my terms, when I'm ready and when you're ready. God is so patient. Sure, there's a bit of discipline in here for Zechariah. It's probably also a sign for other people to know that God's presence actually did show up as well. But there's a patience there that God loves. And and we see the patience of God with people like Abraham and Moses and Gideon and and Zechariah here and Mary and Joseph when he he appears to them and, and they're questioning, is this really God? Is this really God's presence or not? And we see, as, we see this theme throughout the whole Bible in the Old Testament. We see the, uh, the prophets talking about repeatedly how God wanted to come to his people as, as a mother comes to a child, as a, as a father comes to a child, as a husband comes to a, a wayward wife trying to woo her back and be personal to her. But they kept trying to come to him thinking they were doing the right religious things, thinking they were putting the right coins in and expecting a result, but there was never anything personal. And we see eventually God's patience over hundreds of years allowing discipline to come in. But this whole story of God wanting to be more than a vending machine to us, wanting to be more than an object to us, wanting to be personal is the theme of the entire Bible. And it all requires in every instance that we come to him on his terms. And that we, also, we also come to terms and recognize and value And remember the times he showed himself to us. To not doubt those. You see, the real question today is, will we believe it when he does show himself to us? Or will we dismiss it as emotion or coincidence? And the invitation today is to settle things. To trust his love. To trust his personalness. To trust that he wants to show himself to you. That he has been showing himself to you. That he will be faithful to show himself to you. And I want to do just a bit of an exercise. Some of you may feel like this is a little uncomfortable and weird. Just go with it, okay? I want to take an opportunity right now. I just want you to close your eyes. Okay, would you do that? Just close your eyes. You may not even have decided that you believe God's ever shown himself to you personally. Even if you haven't, I'm confident he has. And I'm confident if you take, some, take a moment here and think back of the times when you thought maybe God showed himself to you. I want you to remember those times. If you're confident he showed himself to you, I want you to just take the next couple minutes and I want you to think through those experiences where God was so tangibly real to you and remember them. Would you do that? I'm just going to give you a moment.
you're one who has a really hard time with this whole thing of personal, if you struggle with thinking that God, no, these things are all just coincidences, maybe you believe in Jesus, but you still struggle with it. Maybe you don't believe. I want to invite you just quietly in your heart to pray this prayer with me. God, if those experiences were you, Lord, I want to thank you and I want to acknowledge your desire to be personal to me. God, I want to know you personally and I want to come to you on your terms more than I want my way and more than I want my questions answered. And Lord, I pray for for those here who during this time of remembrance may have remembered times where it's undeniable that you talk to them, but they haven't crossed that line of committing their lives to you. Lord, I pray that you would help them to cross that line now. Lord, that you would help them to declare their faith in you, to declare their need for you. Just as Chris continually recognized, even even after he denied you, that, that there was something about you. There was something, ten, some tension that you were creating in him, that you were being very personal to him. Lord, I pray for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.